good to see you. Thank you, Charlie. Good morning and happy Easter. It's good to have you here. Let's get after it. We're going to be in Luke today, chapter 24. Luke, so you can open up your Bible and turn right. And this is going to be a powerful passage. It's going to show us a picture of the resurrection. And this is such a powerful moment in history. It's actually recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the only things that are in all four Gospels. And it's going to be powerful for us today in the book of Luke because it's going to carry two key phrases that are going to help us today. And so let's go ahead and jump in. Luke 24. It's a strong passage, starting from verse 1. I'm going to read it with you, and this will be the one we stay in for most of the time we're looking into the Bible today. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and, the, and Mary, the mother of, of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Okay. As you read the different accounts from the different Gospels, you pick up different little details. This moment in the morning, John says it was still dark outside. But Mark says that the sun was just starting to come up. And of course, both those things can be true at the same time. It shows you how early in the morning this was. And I always get the feeling that as you read between the lines, that people were having a hard time sleeping on these days, that night and the night before, a mixture of confusion and, and sadness over Jesus being stuffed in a tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to Jesus with myrrh, most likely one of the ointments and, and aloes that they would bring to anoint Jesus' body as a way of honoring him. You, you see a full circle here. This was prophesied whenever Jesus was a baby, and myrrh was brought as a gift, and here they bring it in a moment like this. But by the time they got there, the stone was already shoved aside. Luke states that the two angels stood by in dazzling apparel. But Matthew says that they looked like lightning. It's interesting. And it's also interesting that before the ladies could even form a question, the angel asks them a question. And it is, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Oddly, Jesus, who is the hero of this moment, isn't even in this passage. And that's really the punchline of Easter, isn't it? That he's not there. That's the whole point. The questions we're going to answer today is, why does it matter? Why does Easter even matter? How is this even relevant? Why bother getting dressed up? Why bother making this a special day? And it is a special day. Today we celebrate Jesus breaking forth from death with the keys of life, as what the Bible describes as the firstborn among all of his brothers and sisters, his church. The firstborn who would go before us and never die. 
And that's the primary ramification for Easter, right? Is that those of us who trust in Christ, who we would call ourselves Christians, those who trust in Jesus are no longer held hostage to the fear of death, prompting Paul himself to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul would even flex on death a little bit throughout some of the letters by replacing the word death with the word sleep, just as a way of rubbing it in, that it doesn't affect God's people like it affects everybody else. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Stay in Luke. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So for God's people, death might pose as a thief, act like a thief, dress like a thief, but can steal nothing from God's people. Even our funerals are more anti-funerals, aren't they? I mean, I've done a lot of funerals in my life, a lot. And if it's a Christian's funeral, it's the same predictable thing that I hear every single time, whether it is the widow, the widower, the remaining family members. They all always say, and you could probably even finish it for me, Luke, we don't want this to be a sad moment. This is a celebration of life, right? I know I'm going to hear it whenever I walk in. It's because we don't look at death as a hard stop, but a moment where we wake up. That's how the Bible describes it. But for for us to see how relevant this is, it's important to know how the tomb was vacated. Not just that it was vacated, but how it was vacated. Was it man that body snatched Jesus from the tomb, or was it God himself that body snatched Jesus from the tomb? If you study the history of medicine, you will find a story back in the 1800s of men who called themselves the resurrectionists. Maybe you already have heard this before. But there was a grave robbery pandemic in America in the 1800s. It was even worse in Europe, in the, but everything's worse in Europe, right? So it was really bad, out of control there, bad here. And what was going on is they needed fresh bodies to practice medicine on, to learn how to do the stuff that we need them to do. So they would collaborate and build contracts with gangs, local gangs who would go find a funeral, wait a day or two, go and grab the body, bring it to the medical school. True story, you could look it up. These body-snatching grave robbers were called resurrectionists. And as I like to say, innovation begets more innovation. Cemeteries figured it out, right? So what did they do? They started posting guards. They started rolling heavy tombs across the face of the grave. They started sealing it. They started putting concrete on top of caskets. They started putting bars over them. You can actually go online and see pictures of these. Why? Because bodies are supposed to stay in tombs. Death was always meant to have the final and last word. Easter celebrates the opposite of this, doesn't it? Easter celebrates the ultimate body snatch by the ultimate resurrectionist in God himself. Jesus does not belong there. Death does not get the last word. Now, when you go back to the Easter story in the Bible, you'll find out in the book of Matthew, stay stay in Luke, but in Matthew, you see a description of how the power brokers and the influencers of the day wanted to start a rumor, and that rumor still persists today. And the rumor is this. It wasn't God who vacated Jesus' body from the tomb. It was men, men who did this. We'll see this in Matthew 28. It says, and when they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. These are the guys that were passed out cold, right? To the soldiers and said, tell people 
His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And friends, I'll say it's still being spread even to this day. Now listen, here's what we know. No one today really denies that a person named Jesus lived and then died on a cross, right? Whether you... Um, have found it in history and your own research, there has been so many records, both from Christian historians and non-Christian historians, that there was a man of consequence that lived whose name was Jesus who died on a tomb. So no one really argues that, right? Unless you like believe that the earth is still flat or something like that, you might still argue it. But most people are not arguing this anymore. What is argued is whether he rose from the dead. That's where people bump into each other. You see, the story of his body being snatched by men, that still is a story that persists today. It sounds like this. Jesus was just a man. Nothing special, unless a good teacher is special to you, right? Not a big deal. Nice guy, maybe a bit naive, probably couldn't read the room, didn't know trouble was coming his way, might have needed a marketer. Popular guy, but only popular with a certain people, not much of a revolutionary, likable, but not God. Just a man, his body is dust. But friends, hear me now. All of history hinges on how Jesus came from the tomb. All of history. All of your hopes hinge on how Jesus came from the tomb. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul again speaking to a different church. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, and that's frightening, right? That's the saddest of all scenarios right there, to only have hope in this life, even if you have a good life. That's a horrible scenario. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are the people most to be pitied. You see, it was a real resurrection. wasn't a metaphorical one. wasn't a symbolic resurrection. He didn't symbolically die, metaphorically die. He was flesh and blood. His heart stopped beating. His neurons, they quit firing. His muscles quit contracting. His skin went cold. Novelist John Updike, in his famous poem, The Seven Stanzas of Easter, says it this way. He says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered. Let us not mock God with metaphor, he says, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted, in the faded credulity of early ages, let us walk through the door. That's what he's challenging us to do. Let us walk through the door, not one where we die, but one where we wake up. You see, history hinges on this. Our hopes hinge on this. A real resurrection of a real man, even your Bible hinges on this. Right? This is important to know if you want to know how your Bible works. The Bible has significant movement to it. Okay, That's one way to think of it. It's got a lot of movement to it. 
One way is it moves from Genesis to Revelation. So there's an arc, there's a storyline, it's progressive. There's movement there. There's a second kind of movement in your Bible, though. And it's where moments, occasions, chapters, books all move towards the pivot point of the entire cosmos, which is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Bloody cross because Jesus' blood covers our sins. It was an effective cross. Empty tomb because death only was a foe and is no, no, no longer one. So there's movement in all of these directions. But if you pull the thread of any passage in your Bible, it will tug on the epicenter that is the bloody cross and the empty tomb. There is no scripture that does not. No scripture that does not wait for it. Point to it. Look back and reflect upon it. Lean into it. Celebrate it. Even Jesus himself says as much. In Luke 24, as Jesus appears and walks with two disciples on a road, very likely a couple, says this. Luke says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He showed them how the Psalms pointed to him. He showed them how Isaiah pointed to him, how Esther pointed to him how everything pointed to him. And what did they say? They said that their hearts burned whenever he did this. Their hearts were afire when they saw the movement of even the Old Testament all towards what God would do in the person of Christ, not just on the, not just on the cross, but out of a tomb. You know, German composers actually have a word for this. It's called leitmotif, L-E-I-T-M-O-T-I-F. It's one word, leitmotif. And it's just the idea that there's a repeating theme or a guiding motif that weaves its way through a large musical composition. Swan Lake is like this if you're a music fan, right? You'll see, you'll hear echoes of the same piece over and over again through all of the, all, all of the composition. We actually have this in film too, by the way, right? Which is why when you see that dorsal fin come up out of the water in Jaws, you always hear the same little few bars of music, right? Or, or whenever you see James Bond enter the scene, don't you hear the same guitar strings plucked? Right? Darth Vader walks into a room and you hear the same imperial march. That's a light motif. We're meant to see that. It's, it's encoded in us. Here's the thing. Your Bible has those. Your Bible has a lot of those moments, a light motif. Um, this is what, uh, when we take communion, you see bread and you see wine. Right? You see body and you see blood. That's something that reprises itself as a repeated stanza all through the musical work of what God has done. Water, washing away sin, does the same thing. That's a leitmotif. Fire, fire, whether it appears above the heads of the new church in the new church age where it appears before Abraham, it has that leitmotif factor. The biggest one in your Bible is escaping death. Escaping death is littered everywhere, right? We see Adam and Eve escaping death as they are clothed by God himself and sent into a world to work and dominate for his glory and for their good. We see Noah escaping death as his family is elevated above the flood waters and washing all the, the evil underneath them. We see Israel escaping death by adorning the doorposts of their houses with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. We see Moses escaping death as he leads that same nation through raging parted waters that would wash away the evil behind them. We see Joseph escaping death as he was set at the right hand of the most powerful ruler in the world out of prison, out of even slavery itself. We see Isaac escaping death on a hill as God provided a sacrificial replacement in a ram. 
We see Job escaping death as he encounters a beautiful God who afflicted him. We see Jonah escaping death as he's coughed up from a fish after three days himself, experiencing new life as a missionary. We see Daniel escape death as the mouths of lions are closed around him. We see Esther escaping death by receiving grace and favor from a benevolent king. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaping death. Even though they're in fire, there is one like the Son of God with them in the fire. We see David escaping death repeatedly as he too, like Christ, would exit caves, yet surrounded by criminals, although he is anointed to be king and ruler. We would see Lazarus escaping death as Jesus calls him forth, the picture of many more tombs to be emptied afterward, his own included. We see Peter escaping death as he's broken out of jail. We see Paul escaping death as he survives shipwrecks and beatings over and over and over and over again. We see that God is pointing to one who would not just escape and cheat death, but would destroy death forever. That's our leitmotif. God is our great resurrectionist, snatching bodies, cheating death. He left clues everywhere everywhere. But even if this is true, why does it matter? How is it relevant? still want to answer those questions. There's two big things that we see in this passage today that I could, I could definitely point to and say this is meant for us today. One is I, I still feel like we have to answer that question, are we still looking for life among the dead? Are we, like them, looking for Jesus among the dead because he is not there? Hear me, the grave is full of dead religions. Every pretender has a tombstone, whether it's Buddha or Mohammed, Ron Hubbard or whoever else. All of them are dust. There's going to be many more that join them, I'm sure. Jesus, however, refuses to be just found with dead religion. And when I say dead religion, I don't mean some weird animistic thing that a third world tribe celebrates somewhere else or, or just a new age path. Listen, dead religion is alive and kicking in the American church. It's alive and kicking. Dead religion in Knoxville. Dead religion in Knoxville says that unless you've performed well, friends, you don't belong here. That's what it says. If you don't live clean, probably trespassing right now. If you can't obey consistently, then you're no longer family. The church is for clean people, put together people. That's what dead religion preaches. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that way? Listen, if you've ever lived a season away from Christ or you've struggled with a pervasive sin, isn't this why you don't show up to anything around other Christians? Isn't this why it's hard to even open the world? You just don't feel clean enough. You don't feel put together enough. You don't feel like family anymore. Dead religion in Knoxville says that it's going to be your behavior that actually brings favor or pushes God's favor away from you. And that, friend, that's not even Christianity. That's karma. That's actually Buddhism that belongs in the grave. Good Friday, which celebrates a bloody cross. Easter, which celebrates an empty tomb, declares that it is Jesus' behavior that brings favor, that brings God close to us, not ours. We can't, even, we can't even help with this. He does this despite our best attempts, despite our worst failures. He brings himself close to us. In fact, the only thing we bring to Jesus is our vast and expanding need. And I say expanding because we need him more every single day. All we offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. If there was a marriage between a bride and the groom who is Jesus, we bring a dowry of debt. He brings himself and all the spiritual treasures in heaven. This is how it's stated in Ephesians 2. Stay where you're at again. And I'm going to read this out of the J.B. Phillips translation. 
Um, this is a from, from the 40s and the 50s, John Bertram Phillips, just in case you were curious, he actually did this translation from a bomb bunker in World War II in England. So when carpet bombing was happening, this is when this verse we're about to read was, was translated. He had this growing frustration that the Bible was not connecting to the younger generation of his day, so he built a New Testament translation that shot off in popularity about 25 years later in the Jesus movement. But this is how he's translating this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you were saved and had lifted us out of the old life to take our place with him in Christ in the heavens. Thus, he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he has expressed towards us in Christ Jesus. It was nothing you could or did achieve. It was God's gift to you. No one can pride himself among earning the love of God. The fact that we are what we owe to the hand of God upon us. Now, this is what's interesting. Every corner of the globe has its own contextual nuances. And what I mean by that is every corner of the globe resists Jesus in its own way. Uh, We're going to find resistance to Jesus here in Appalachian South a little bit different than the resistance you'll find in Boston or San Diego or Manila or Toronto. It's going to be different. But here in the South, here in Knoxville, here in the Appalachian South, we love to behave. We love to perform in order to appear clean and upright before man and before God. It's the very heartbeat of dead religion. Jesus, in our part of the world, isn't someone to be enjoyed, but someone to be impressed. I mean, this, friends, this is why we started our very mission statement. It's the ignition to all of our mission, vision, and values to enjoy Jesus. It runs countercultural to how we grow up to see Jesus here, that we enjoy him, that we're fascinated by Jesus, that we're enchanted by the person of Jesus. What we love to do here in this part of the country is climb a ladder towards God. There's this ladder. Whether you look at it as a ladder or not, where every good deed, every good thing you do and every bad thing you don't do is one rung you get to climb up. And how do you know that you're climbing? You look around you and you judge yourself by how others are doing, right? And you just you climb. Man, and it's hard, isn't it? Because whenever you fail, what happens? You go down a notch or two or 200, right? Depending on what you did or for how long you've been doing it. But that's what life has become. That's what religion does. Up a, up a ladder, down a ladder, up a ladder, down a ladder. It's exhausting. Friend, if that's you, you should be exhausted, You should be exhausted by that. Sometimes it's just too much. Religion will exhaust you. It won't bring you any life. It only brings shame if you fail or pride if you climb. But this is what the gospel brings and moves in to replace that with. The gospel says there's no ladder for you to climb anymore. In fact, God himself descends towards us and as Paul tells the Thessalonians, carries us with him. Carries us with him. This is good news for us. There's a lot of grace there. We don't deserve any of it. It's solid favor in our direction. We fundamentally resist this. We're highly allergic to this type of grace. Friend, let me just tell you, Jesus is different than anything you've ever encountered. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion together as a church. And listen, if you've been coming to Legacy, you know this. You you know that whenever we talk about communion, I use the same words. I say the same things. That's not by accident. That's not because I lack for creativity. It's just that communion is not something that is begging for a lot of innovation on. So we always say, it's, here's a wafer, here's a little cup of juice, 
It's symbolic of a broken body, spilt blood. We do this in remembrance of what God has done for us in Christ. But then I usually throw this in there as well. It also helps us peer forward. It helps us look into a, what, a different banqueting table, a party where we have the best bread ever made, the best wine ever made with the best host who has ever existed, Jesus himself. We have this beautiful moment where we walk up to a banqueting table, and this is how much favor and grace is on us as his people. You don't have to start looking for a chair. You don't have to kind of work your way in and make yourself at home. He has actually made a space for you. He pulls the chair out for you and says, welcome home. Welcome home. I'm so excited that you're here. Friends, he is, <laughs> he is no dead wise scholar teaching us just how to act better. He's no fable meant to teach us ethics. He is God among men, living, dying, living again for rebels and vandals and criminals and thieves like me. Point being, don't go looking for Jesus among dead religion. He's not there. He's simply not there. The second thing that we can learn from Easter in this story is we really wonder if we can change. It's interesting to me, I mean, it kind of is, and then it's kind of expected at the same time. Verse 11 of our passage, but these words, the words that the ladies brought, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. This is the one group that should have believed it. This is the one group that should have said, yeah, sure, we were expecting this. We wonder if we can really change. You know, one of the beautiful consequences of Easter is it makes us superhuman. Not, not, not just that we wake up from death instead of die forever, but it makes us superhuman and that we could finally change. And I mean substantially and fundamentally change. Finally. This is what it says in Romans 8. Paul, talking to a different church, he says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of God is the spark of change. That's what we hear from a passage like this. No matter how screwed up you are, and some of you are screwed up pretty bad, right? Let's face it, right? No matter how screwed up any of us are, you are not further from change than death is from life. You're meant to see this. We're not further. As, 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 much, as much as we like to peer under the hood and see how sleazy we can be in our heart, what frightens us isn't necessarily what we're going to find. What really frightens us is what we figure is possible. Can I really change? Can I really change from what I see? That's the haunting question. We're convinced we will always be like that. So much of my walk as a Christian, as a younger man, I just didn't feel like I could really change. Maybe, I mean, maybe in small changes, right? But not, not the fundamental ones, right? Maybe some cosmetic changes here or there. Kind of like when you have an old car, maybe your first car, and you just wanted to freshen it up, so you're spraying Plasti-Dip all over it. Maybe put an air spoiler on the back and push a new stereo into the dashboard. Friend, it's still the same car, right? But that's what we expect from something like Christianity. But being born again doesn't mean being a better dead person. Crying out loud. It means being a new person, a living person. Is this too much for you to believe? Is this asking too much for you to believe that you can totally change? Or will addicts always be addicted to you? Will, will broken people always be broken? Angry people always be furious? Anxious people never get any rest? 
Listen, if Paul, and this has always been an encouragement to me in the Bible, and I'm so glad about how blisteringly honest this word can be to us. If Paul can change from a bitter, seething, angry, murdering Pharisee to an apostle who pours his life out like a drink offering for the glory of God, then you can change. You can change beyond your Christian cussing and changing your Sunday morning schedule around to make it three out of four weeks instead of one out of five. You can change. You can totally change. Not at a cosmetic level, but at that solid undercurrent where we always wonder, will this always be the way it is? Consider the distance between death and life. Can you even think of anything that could be further apart? Maybe east from west, to use biblical language. There's nothing more different than death and life. Maybe if we looked at it a different way. I want you to imagine this whole Easter scene is different. The Marys walk up with myrrh in tow. And they don't find two angels there in dazzling, lightning-like apparel. They find Jesus there. He comes walking out, not looking brilliant, not looking like lightning, just looking like Tuesday, right? Not, not tour clothes or bloody, just, just kind of just normal clothes. And he doesn't even look like he used to because death had its way with him a little bit. So he's got this limp because he can't use one of his legs now, right? It's a little bit of a peg leg. He's just kind of using it to lean on. He's missing an eye, right? Because death, come on, I mean, death can be kind of tough. So, he's got, so they have to scramble and get him a patch and give him a little bit of a cane, all right, just to help him. But he's kind of lost some things, right? He's lost it. He smells bad. He's lost his sense of humor. Not the same guy he used to be. But hey, at least he's alive. If that was the story, then and only then would I look at this and say, well, maybe I can only change a little bit. I mean, maybe just a little bit. Maybe, maybe the changes we can expect are, are small, microscopic even. If Easter does anything for you today, it should provoke you to ask God for things that are utterly impossible unless he does it right in front of your eyes himself. I mean, one of the things I'm constantly convicted on in my own life is I don't pray for the impossible near enough. Do you usually catch yourself doing that? Or do you pray for things that could be possible without him? I mean, this should shape not only our prayer, but our expectations for how much we change. It should shape our expectations for how we communally change. It should shape our expectations for what we want from Knoxville, Tennessee. It should shape everything. Church, listen to me. Let today be a day of change. Let today be a day of change. A day where an empty tomb is more than just a nice sentiment, right? Let today be a day where we stop performing we stop the exhaustive treadmill-like religious life. We stop setting our eyes on just tiny itty-bitty changes. But make today a day of repentance for small trust and tiny prayers. Make today a day of praying for things that are absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Just as impossible as a dead man coming to life. Make today a day of asking Jesus to enjoy him more. Ask Jesus to be more fascinated by him, more enchanted by him, more drawn to him. Ask him that your heart, like those two on the walk to Emmaus, would burn, that your heart would burn. Make today a day where we stop looking for Jesus among dead, exhausting religion. And listen, I know some of you today are not Christians, right? Whether you're watching online right now or you're here. I know you're not, even though your parents told you you were, Right? Maybe, maybe you've always wondered that. You've sat through 250, 300 sermons, just like I did when I was in your position. Always asking yourself the question, am I really saved? Which might be the most asked question in human history. 
if we count all the ones we ask ourselves that no one can hear. Am I really saved? Really saved. You want to know why we keep asking ourselves that? It's because we keep going back to the same old things, don't we? Or as John would say, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And we know that. Practicing sinning just means doing something over and over again to get better at it. We know that because we keep going back to something and we don't even want to move past it because we enjoy it so much, maybe we're not saved. Friend, you might not be. I mean, frankly, if you hate what God loves and you catch yourself loving what God hates, and Easter is just a day you wear a suit, you're probably a corpse. You're a dead person. But what if today, what if today God, our great resurrectionist, changed our heart? What if the rest of your story, the future chapters, looks so different from the previous chapters, it's as if a dead person came to life? What if? What if you could stop pretending and just be yourself? What if you could just stop pretending and be comfortable in your own skin? What if you could just stop being exhausted by climbing the ladder over and over again? This can happen for you, friend. Listen, it happened to me. It happened to me. I was a well-behaved expert performer. I was diligent. I was disciplined. I was ordered and acceptable. I was ambitious successful, I was motivated, I was heading places. I was also exhausted. I was exhausted, tired of climbing and descending, climbing and descending. And then one, God, one day, God loved me so much that he showed me a picture, a quick glimpse, just a Polaroid of me getting everything that I wanted. And I was scared to death, sickened and frightened, all at the same time. And I just remember Jesus' words coming out of the Bible echoing in my ears. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Friend, if that's you, you can join me today. You can join me. All it takes is you bring in your failures with you. All it takes is you bring in your failures and your regrets and your crimes to Jesus and then the spark of God, the spark of his death-defying spirit will change you every bit as much as it brought a dead man to life. God promises that he'll do this. God promises that he'll do this.